Welcome to the Death Dialogues Project Podcast. I'm your host, Becky Odd Jennison, and I can guarantee you that you will be a better human for listening to these stories. Thanks for being here. Hello, thank you for joining us at the Death Dialogues Project Podcast. Our guest today is Lindsay Joy Taylor, and she's a grief advocate. Lindsay's mother was murdered when she was only 13 months old, so part of her story digs deeply into the effects of loss and trauma as an infant. You know, I have to say, throughout all my years of working with people, I've never quite had a story come up like this. And I think that you're going to find it very intriguing. And it can be very helpful for you in your own grief journey, but also understanding the complexities of a traumatic loss, and how infants and children may respond to those situations. In response to her grief, she went on and was trained to be a grief support specialist. And she has started a company called the Joyful Jewelry Box, where she provides jewelry for people as grief support and remembrances. She also writes and speaks to normalize and raise awareness about grief, loss and trauma. Lindsay lives in California. And in her downtime, you can usually find her at the beach with her husband, Brandon and their dog trooper, and you will find her links in our program notes today. Hey, thanks for listening. Hello, Lindsay. Thanks for joining us today. Hi, Becky. Thank you so much for having me. Well, I'm absolutely thrilled that you've um, approached us and want to share your story on here. I would love if you would just kind of do what we do and take off telling our listeners about your story of grief and loss. And then we'd love to hear what you're doing as well. Absolutely. Uh, Thanks again for having me. My name is Lindsay Joy, and my personal story is that I'm a motherless daughter And my mom was actually murdered when I was only 13 months old. So not only do I not remember her, but I didn't have a chance to even build a relationship with her. Um, And so growing up without a mom was really, really difficult. And yet at the same time, I didn't necessarily know anything different. You know, as you can imagine, I had to grow up really fast and I was a really independent child Um, I have an older brother and an older sister, and my sister really stepped in and assumed the role of my mother in a lot of ways, Um, and so I have her to thank and depend on for a lot of that, but outside of that, I really grew up immediately, if you will, and I don't necessarily have an experience of life that I remember without grieving, if you will. You know, so many people talk about the significance of the before and the after, um, who they were before their loss and who they became during the aftermath and really um, the difference in who those people are. And so that's been interesting for me as I've grown into an adult, really figuring out how entrenched every part of myself is in my grief, right? And really how much I I've had to learn how to separate myself 
from that experience. And growing up so parentified, if you will, um, I think that I believed that I had a really healthy way of coping without having a mother, if you will. And I don't want to say that I didn't. I was very um, high functioning and high achieving. I was involved in school. Um, I earned good grades. I had some really longstanding friendships. And yet, as I've gotten older, it has become so apparent how much I really wasn't grieving at all, if you will, or um, how much I didn't think the so-called grieving process applied to me, right? Because it's, um, first of all, I think as we've learned more recently in the past few years that, that it's not the, the typical grieving process of five stages that we've all been taught and are so widely known. Um, I didn't really see that I fit into any of that. And Mm. so it was really interesting to feel like I carried this big weight and this big, massive part of my identity and yet I didn't feel like there was ever an outlet that, that I could really express that I was struggling with not having a mother, that I was missing somebody that I couldn't even remember, that I had such a void in that way, you know? And uh, yeah, I totally hear that. I, you know, it's not like you can look up support groups for children whose mothers were murdered when they were 13 months old. I mean, this is a unique loss story. Exactly. Exactly. And, you know, my family did do some um, trauma therapy, as I understand it, immediately after. It wasn't um, long-term by any means, and and I don't want to minimize the impact that that it had on them and, and therefore me as well. But ultimately I was really removed from that. And so that was another big piece too, is watching everybody in my life be able to remember and talk about my mom. I mean, mostly with the exception of my brother and my sister. Um, clearly their memories are very limited, but still there are actual memories. I can't even draw on, you know, a, a visual of that. So uh, how much older are your brother and sister than you? Six, my sister is six years older than me and my brother is eight years older than me. Okay. So, so yeah. I was a year old. My sister had just turned seven and my brother had just turned nine. So certainly very much children. But I think as an adult, um, and I can't, I'm not trying to speak for them, but as I have deepened my understanding and my own personal and professional work in grief, um, really just seeing the differences that those developmental stages has had for each of us yes. and how differently we all um, approach the very same loss. Um, and so, and, and I think it's important to say that, that because it was such a tragic circumstance, you know, everybody in my life was traumatized as well. And, you know, I think in my opinion, in a lot of ways still carries trauma to this day. And so in no way was I um, ever told not to grieve per Mm -hmm. se. I was never told not to remember her. I was never told that, um, that it wasn't a big deal. So I, I want to communicate that, but I also think that the, the lack of communication or the lack of like the intentionality, because we were all just in so much shock really didn't facilitate an environment where I felt comfortable to talk about any of this. Mm -hmm. Right. And so, you know, and then you develop the identity that you're so strong and you're so capable and, and people really grasp onto that piece of your story, I think. Um, 
and I don't even know that this is a piece that I even recognize until I'm saying it to you now, but like you identify with that resilience and you don't want to let other people down and let yourself down. If that makes sense. Right. Yeah. Um, and so ultimately, um, all of that to say, I didn't really begin processing my grief until my early twenties. Right. So I carried this massive void, this massive, um, trauma and really minimized it in every way that I possibly could, because that was what I saw happen in the world. And, um, you know, I can, can I interject and ask just to paint us a bit more of a picture about, um, after your mother died, what, what was your, how were you raised? So give us a little sense of that. Um, so we can have a context. Yeah. So I continued to live with my father. He was a single father with us, uh, three children. Yeah. Um, he did remarry a couple of times. Mm-hmm. One time was <clears throat> fairly short after my mom passed away. Um, in order to really try and provide some stability and um, support for him and a mother figure for us. I don't know that 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 was accomplished per se, but that was, you know, ultimately the intention. Um, So she was around for a couple of years. That was not a positive experience. In fact, it just really um, uh, exacerbated everything in my in looking at it in my personal rear view mirror. Um, and so he was a single father with us three kids, um, for another five years or so. And then he remarried again. And that woman wasn't necessarily interested in being a mother figure either. Um, and yet I would say none of us kids were interested in having a mother figure that wasn't our own. Mm -hmm. Um, so I would say that was a better circumstance, but really still wasn't very positive. And so, um, ultimately I really, as much as I do have experience with stepmothers, I still really view my experiences growing up with a single father. Um, and because my brother and my sister were so much older than me, ultimately I was an, I was an only child starting at 12 years old, Mm -hmm. right? They, Mm -hmm. they moved out and, um, and that was interesting. You know, my father and I luckily have a, a mutually respective relationship now, Um, There's certainly been some bumps there. And I think that the big piece of um, distance there was everything that I just said, you know, and uh, that there wasn't a familial pattern of talking about things outside of necessarily what happened, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Like the actual event of um, what happened as our home was being robbed. My, My mother came home in the middle of it and they shot her. Um, when she walked in the door. And so um, I would say the conversations have always either been much more about who she was and trying to fill in the blanks of questions that we had as children Mm -hmm. or specifically talking about the events of that night. Yeah. Not so much the impact of what life has been like without her, because I think we're still navigating that we're still figuring that out. You know, a big piece of, What I've said, and I'll just repeat again, though, was for me, it took 20 some odd years to even begin to dig into this. And I would say in a lot of ways, I'm sort of the ringleader of that in our family, the catalyst of this is important. We need to talk about this. This matters to me. Mm -hmm. Um, And again, my family's been really respectful and never trying to say no to that. 
which has been really beautiful. There's been a lot of unexpected healing that's come out of that. Um, but ultimately to answer your question full circle is, um, you know, it was a massive part of our lives and yet it also was kind of swept under the rug. And, um, is there a time you remember being the first recognition, aha, that I don't have a mama, you know? Yes. Can Um, you tell us about that a bit? I would say my eighth grade graduation for like a, a conscious memory where I was connecting the dots. Um, they played a song and gave you roses to take out into the audience to give to your parents. And essentially it was my dad and my second stepmother. And it was like, I don't want to give her a rose <laughs> for all sorts of reasons. But the primary one is that she's not my mother. My mother should be here. And instead of overlooking that, by giving you the rose, I, I want to take time and, and mourn for my mom. Mm, mm. (laughs) right because so much of that is we talk about how grief is so much of love and honoring our person and keeping their memory alive and I feel like in a lot of ways I got a really late start on that you know Mm -hmm. and again understandably so but um, that was the big sort of like oh this isn't the way that life is supposed to be Um, I would say, however, it probably was more obvious than that in other ways because my school, my elementary school, uh, God bless them because it was actually a very tiny little town. And so like in, in looking back, it just was a very progressive thing to do. I was, I wound up on somebody's radar and I was pulled out of class with a handful of other kids and we would do play therapy. So I don't actually have um, much information about that other than I remember how um, significant that was for me, that it felt important, Mm -hmm. um, that I appreciated the attention, for lack of a better term, Mm -hmm. Um, even though I had no idea what the purpose of it was at the time. So I would say it started long before that, but again you know, my, my intention is to give grace to the adults in my life because I don't know that because I wasn't demanding of attention and because I wasn't creating problems and saying, or, um, not saying, but because my behavior Mm. wasn't necessarily, um, articulating that I was struggling. There was the idea that I wasn't struggling. Mm. Oh, it's all she ever knew. That's what I can hear people saying. Bless her. (laughs) You know, right? Exactly. You know, the idea that what kids don't know or remember won't hurt them. Mm. And that's absolutely. um, And I'm not saying that that was a belief or a practice in my family thing. I mean that more societally speaking. Right. And I, that's why I want to share my story so much with people, you know, in my work now and the grief advocacy that I do so much of what I hear is how can I not be over this now? How is, how do I still feel this way? Very much, you know, the guilt and, the shame of carrying grief over such a deep loss. And my message is, I don't even remember her. It was 35 plus years ago and I still struggle, Mm -hmm. you know, and that this is normal. It's absolutely normal. And certainly my situation is complex and complicated and all of those things. And yet there are plenty of people who've had a little bit more of a, I don't even want to describe it this way, but less complex, Mm -hmm. um, loss. Maybe it wasn't sudden or 
traumatic, you know, fill in the, the blanks for yourself. But ultimately, we still feel the same way. <laughs> yeah, you know, that time really doesn't matter. And that even if we do, even if we don't remember or have a deep grasp of, um, of the depth of that relationship as an adult, right? I mean, as an infant, that is the only relationship in my life, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. That is critical. That is primal. And so like, from that standpoint, it's absolutely devastating. And it's important to me to really communicate that to the world that, that it's simply not true that first of all, that grief is, is, is lifelong and it's definitely not one size fits all. And ultimately that it's the connection and the love and those relationships, not necessarily the memories that dictates how it plays out. I think this is such an important conversation because um, that idea that, you know, we know mother love, you know, we know what that is capable of. And, you know, to think that you at 13 months, of course, you may not have any um, concrete uh, cognitive memory of your mother, but what a trauma that had to be for you to have been cuddled, cuddled, nurtured, you know, routine, mama, all of that. And then one day, not only one day is it gone, but one day is it gone and my whole family is acting in a different way. You know, I'm just going to say you're preverbal then. So you may not be making sentences in your head, but like you're saying, viscerally, emotionally, your world was turned upside down. Absolutely. And, and you just nailed it when you said that it was pre-verbal and that's what makes it so complex for me, right? Is that, um, and and children in general, but very specifically, I did, I was not talking, you know, I mean, with the, the, the exception of a few words here and there, I was not talking. There was no way to communicate, um, what was happening for me. Um, and we already know that children who are talking and communicating how much of a, um, uphill battle that is for them as well. And so that's been a big part of what's been so um, difficult is that it it really is, it feels impossible to put into words. It really does feel all consuming. And, um, and the other layer of that is that there's, you know, very inherent pre-verbal complex trauma there, traumatic loss. Yeah. And so um, as an adult, again, when you become much more reliant and involved on relationships, you know, of course, you're building them and learning how to be in them as children. But like as adults, the, <laughs> that's, you know, I think the foundation of our lives and um, it creates a lot of difficulty for me there. And certainly um, I've been in therapy for many, many years and will continue to be. And there are great seasons where I can definitely see um, a lot of recovery, but then there's also other seasons where you see different habits reemerge and, and it just ebbs and flows, right? It Mm. it never, it's very much like grief. I, I don't believe that there's an end recovery that we ever reach, you know? So well, it's in your bones. That's for sure. Yeah, exactly. So I just, you know, this other hat that I wear, sometimes I have to ask you, you know, have you noticed 
any man, cause you're talking to me, you're talking about your resilience and the resilience that people note in you. So, mm-hmm. um, I, I'm not hearing that there's major vulnerabilities in the way I'm going to ask right now. So I'm yeah. asking no, no, you no. if you kind of dig a little deeper, do you see any patterns within yourself at all regard surrounding attachment? Absolutely. Issues? Yes, yeah. absolutely. I definitely, um, I have been diagnosed with complex PTSD, um, definitely have a lot of disorganized attachment and how that manifests for me is, um, it feels like I kind of can't win. You know, I, I certainly crave and yearn for contact and connection in my relationships. And in fact, that's, I don't do small talk. I don't really do surface level. Right. So I really crave that deep connection with people. And I've really developed a lot of beautiful relationships in that way. Um, but I'm also can be really hot and cold, right? I personalize a lot of things that really aren't personal um, as much as I now know why they feel personal. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I will withhold a lot. I'm not, I wouldn't say I'm needy. I wouldn't say I'm clingy, but I do withhold. And that's really confusing for people, They want to connect with me. They want to know how I'm doing. And if I don't feel safe or if I don't feel um, that it's going to be reciprocated in the way that I think or, and sometimes know that I need at a certain point in time, it's, it's easier to just cut myself off, cut everybody off than it is to pursue that vulnerability. And what that is really confusing as someone who is so craving of such deep connection, if you will. And so, you know, it's very much a hot and cold lights on and off. And, um, and I certainly see seasons where it's more intense than others. Mm. Um, but it's been really helpful for me to really just identify that. I think before I had the language and the understanding of these things growing up, um, as much as I had some really wonderful relationships, I, still internalize the idea that I was always the problem. I always expected too much. I was too demanding. I. You were complicated. Exactly. You're complex. Right. (laughs) And, um, but I internalized a lot of that. And so that's been another piece of of Mm. growing up and really identifying where I'm not too much. It is not too much to need to talk about the fact that I lost my mother as an infant, you know, and getting to the developmental stage where you have the maturity to see everybody's complicated. Everybody has. Exactly. You know, they may not have this tragic story, but, but, you know, I mean, developmentally, especially like adolescents, it's super easy to, that's why things like Instagram are causing so much trauma for teens and young adults is because they're still in this egocentric phase and, you know, they, they look at everything outside of them that looks perfect is assuming everybody has these wonderful lives. Mm -hmm. Nobody can understand. Nobody can get, you know, what I went through or what I've been through. I would imagine. And then I'm hearing you say, then, you know, in your early twenties, when you would be emerging, you know, from that, Mm -hmm. it sounds like you started doing a little bit more deeper exploration even with your absolutely and understanding. And you, you already said the words developmental stage. It's so important. I'm so glad you've been working with somebody throughout this because it will, you know, our life developmental stages do not end when we become an adult. 
you know, no. it continues to go and it will manifest, you know, grief will have its way with you at every developmental stage. Absolutely. And the thing that gets really confusing too, besides everything we've said is, is that flip of that switch, right? Because you've grown up feeling so much like an adult, such like an old soul, so independent or capable or whatever. Right. And then grief swoops in and it's like, or the attachment stuff or whatever. And it, it feels completely disorienting in the sense of well, wait, now I don't even know how to go back to the coping skills that I had, if that yeah. makes sense. Right. Yeah, Those coping right. skills run out. And so then you're like, wow, I don't even know which end is up. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's a reminder that you had a beautiful mother one day. And one day you didn't, you know, if, 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 if that can be a place you are able to return to, you know, Mm -hmm. that it is, it's actually a very rational response to something that was so absolutely irrational. And absolutely. When you talk about that, the first thing that came into my mind when you mentioned the withholding, even, you know, that you can feel super comfortable with somebody, but every once in a while, you have that wave of withholding. And, mm-hmm. and I just had this vision of, you know, think about that and think about how, you know, as a baby, a little one, a 13 month old, all the way up into the 13 months old, you're, you know, are we ever more vulnerable? Are we ever more, you know, at ease, exhaling in someone's arms? This is it. I know mm-hmm. I'm safe. That was your entire being, your entire sense of security. And I, I just wonder if it's almost like that's just a little bit of a trigger, you know, that, that is that when, why these deep relationships even, you know, where you are feeling very secure can trigger a withholding because somewhere in that body memory, you know, somewhere in your being, it's a, every once in a while, a trigger of this may not last, this may not be safe. Yes, exactly. It triggers all the, oh, that's going to happen again. And Mm. even though, right, something that I've been working on with my therapist is ultimately um, the idea that the worst has already happened, right? Not in the sense of that the death of my mother is any more important than anybody else, but ultimately I will not be an infant dependent on my caretaker and lose them again. Yeah. Right. And so, um, and really just having to separate that. (laughs) Yeah. No, I get it. That panic and understand um, that that's the place that I've gone. And ultimately, too, you've touched on this many times that I think is um, really another important part is how much, again, the body does remember. Right. And we, we have so much. Um, more research and access to information about this now recently, but ultimately like that's another big piece of my message is that how much of this still lives in my body and is kind of the driving force because I don't have the conscious memories, but my body remembers. Right. And so how long it takes for us to metabolize that and, um, and why there's so much residual stuff that we just get, sidelined by that we think has been resolved if you will yes yes where in essence it's uh it's a huge piece of you that contributes to the whole person that you are exactly 
and where it might not be the piece we, you know, would have wanted or, you know, and you mourn it, but you know, it is these deep losses, traumas in our lives, et cetera, that make up our entire whole being. Mm -hmm. And where do we walk forward with that? It sounds like you're, you know, and again, I don't want to be ringing that. Okay. There's somebody goes again, you're doing amazing, but you know, you, you do sound and I, and I, and I want to give you credit. This is no mistake. You are doing the work girl, right? Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Because it's not a, there's no fairy dust coming on at you with, you know, maybe, maybe there was a little fairy dust when you were a baby. (laughs) Oh my gosh. I'm just imagining that. Maybe you had a little you know, something being sprinkled on you to help protect you and wrap around you. And that's a beautiful imagery. But, you know, in reality, we know it, it, this stuff isn't magic. You are doing the work. And I want to really, yeah, honor you for that. Thank you. I appreciate that so much. Um, you know, and I love the image of the fairy dust, if you will. Um, and it reminds me that I'm going to take a tangent here for a minute. So, you go. Uh, stop me if you want. But I, in one of, the, <laughs> uh, one of your other podcasts that I listened to, you were talking about how you wanted more stories of people and sort of that undeniable connection to their person's spirit, right? Mm-hmm. And so it's not fairies by any means, but what's really interesting for my family, um, and this has maybe been another piece that facilitated, um, you know, the deeper levels in the last 10 years or so of us processing, but, you know, my mother was very, uh, very devout Christian, very religious. Um, and that was something that we just really adopted and, and respected about her. And, um, I wouldn't say that we (laughs) tried to live so much the way that she did per se, but really that was like her guiding light. And, you know, it's more of my sister's story to tell, but the, the short version is 20 years after my, wow, actually 25 years after my mom had been gone, there were a lot of random instances with dragonflies in my family that ultimately made it absolutely clear that this was my mother, right? And it was kind of a funny thing for my family because we felt like, how would this, it just felt like a disconnect, like something that, um, we had ascribed our meaning to based upon how religious she had been. Right. And so Mm. it almost became like this, um, this tricky dance of, is that real? Is this really happening? And, and, um, and ultimately dragonflies have become the symbol for my family. And there have been so many moments since that have happened that are beyond random that you can't even deny it. You know, and so um, I just think that once we sort of open ourselves to that possibility, (laughs) Mm -hmm. that's when it starts to show up. Does that make sense? It totally makes sense. And this is just something I feel like that's very synchronistic is that uh, dragonflies to me I always think of fairies with them, oh, you know, my so here I am. yeah, I always imagine them being, uh, you know, they just are so gorgeous, you know, and just, they just remind me of an illustration, you know, of, of the old um, fairies and there would always be dragonflies flying around. And I think that 
one thing, I don't know if you've heard this, but I obviously I've talked to hundreds of people and many people that have some real concrete experience, mediums, et cetera, mm-hmm. you know, about yeah. and quizzed them and read. I've dug into a lot of reading and research. And one thing that I've been able to wrap myself around a little bit with sightings, such as you're saying, because I hear you hesitating, like, how does my mom get into a dragonfly body? And, <laughs> and what they said is, you know, not that that's what you were thinking, but, you know, I can hear that. I can hear that with people. I mm-hmm. think that's where the doubt comes in. And what they said is imagine that their energy, their entity, you know, and it is a great mystery, you know, whatever that is in form allows them to manipulate energy and that it's actually quite a skill. It's not something, you know, they have to really, really desire to do that. So it's helped me because I've had some similar situations like, you know, a bald eagle circled around mm-hmm. and flew with us to my brother's funeral um, into the church. And even the minister, because we got there early, um, his his wife and my son and my, myself to help set up and stuff. And he said, that was not an eagle. That was Max, you know. And, and again, it kind of messes with your mind. Like, wait, are you trying to say my brother was that eagle? But what the messages I hear repeatedly are you know, it's, they're up there smiling, you know, going, okay, there I send the eagle. Absolutely. There I send the dragonfly. Yes. Look, look at their expression on their face when they've seen the dragonfly again, you know, that kind of, it's their puppeteering almost. I agree. Okay. And, okay. Uh, and, and the, the hesitation that you hear is more of me wanting to, it's not, it's not, it's not a private story. It's, I just don't want to take ownership of what happened with, with my sister, but, but it did involve a medium, not in the sense that anybody that we were going and and trying to connect with my mother, but more about like, they kept popping up, they kept popping up, they kept popping up. And ultimately it became this joke where she said, where she had this interaction with this medium. And basically it was, if dragonflies are referenced in any way, shape or form, I understand that this is not random, right? And long story short, that woman's email address was Dragonflight Lady, right? And oh, so, my god! Yeah, I mean, it's undeniable. Um, and, and the hesitation, again, was more about where we were at that point in time of, like, what the? <laughs> right? right. And yet the right. funny thing was, as soon as we tell my dad, he laughs and says, well, your mom sure was persistent. If she wanted to get her, if she wanted to find a way to reach you, she would do any way to do it. And... Um, and it really does become undeniable. And so for me personally now, especially in my work and hearing so many stories from other people, um, I, you know, the spiritual symbols have, have broadened beyond that um, tremendously for me. But it really is undeniable. And what's been helpful for me as someone who doesn't have, again, these explicit memories of my mother, I do, however, now have memories of these really neat, random, but not... Um, meaningful experiences with dragonflies, right? And the ways that they've shown up in just the right time. Um, And so it's facilitated a lot of healing for me in that way too. Well, I can guarantee you that any mother that had the capability of doing it, who, who had to exit rapidly from their 13 month old baby would find whatever way they could to connect. Right. Hmm. Yeah. Thank you. I I appreciate you saying that. Definitely. (laughs) It's absolutely, absolutely with a a full heart that that I say that, you know, there would be, 
Yeah. I mean, if it, if it is possible, and indeed I've heard enough experiences and felt enough experiences that I believe it is, I, I'm, I'm sure that that is part of the reason you came through not feeling more motherless than you did. Hmm. I appreciate you saying that. Thank you. <laughs> mm-hmm. I agree. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yes, tell us what you're doing. <laughs> yeah, so obviously, you know, you opened up to loss. You opened up to grief and that now it's become a passion with you. Tell us a little bit about what that's led you Definitely. to. Definitely. Yeah, and so, you know, I think in a lot of ways it's always sort of been an undercurrent that I wasn't quite aware of, if you will. Um, I used to joke in high school that I wanted to be the next Dr. Laura. So there was certainly an element of <laughs> Wanting mm-hmm. to connect with people and have the real and hard conversations. Um, and ultimately, I went to school for communications and psychology and had a great experience, but still wasn't necessarily sure where that path was um, leading me, if you will. And I supported myself all through college with a lot of administrative jobs. Um, and so I sort of fell into that um, after graduation. And Slowly, that's when really all of my grief and trauma started to emerge, and I just wasn't fulfilled anymore. Um, And it was really interesting. There's actually, there's very much one prominent afternoon where I was on my lunch break walking and just was so unhappy. And it just felt like the sky opened up and said, you need to go back to school, go back to school, go back to school. So I went back to school and I got my master's degree in counseling psychology with an emphasis in depth psychology. And then, um, you know, I'm pursued what, you know, the, the path of what I thought was going to be a marriage and family therapist. And before I graduated, I realized that still wasn't the best fit um, (laughs) because I see myself much more as an advocate. Um, and because of a lot of our previous conversation, that relational aspect really challenges me, um, in a lot of ways, mm-hmm. um, that felt like it wasn't going to serve my clients as well as it was going to serve me or serve my clients or serve me in the process. Um, and so I started working for a mental health association for five years. I absolutely loved it. Um, I ran support groups. I facilitated peer-led trainings and did a lot of administrative work to really just assist with um, outreach and education. And unfortunately, the funding for that ended. And I was forced to get really creative really quickly when I was laid off. And so long story short, I opened the Joyful Jewelry Box, which is my business where I make and sell remembered jewelry and provide grief support to other bereaved individuals. But what's really interesting is that it didn't necessarily start that way. Um, I had had a passion for making jewelry in the past. I had connected with another jewelry designer who taught me a lot of the ins and outs of Etsy. And it felt like uh, a good fix for a confusing season. And In doing that, I realized how much jewelry was actually a prominent piece of connecting with my mother as a child, that I used to play with her jewelry box and I would dig through it for hours and hours, not even necessarily playing dress up, but really just touching and pouring over her pieces, 
Right. Mm -hmm. And so really finally, actually, just all of a sudden clicked that I had always really wanted to support other people that were hurting, that I wanted to facilitate these hard and vulnerable conversations. And yet here I was now all of a sudden making jewelry and using my hands and and it bridged that gap. You know, that realization Mm. really was, oh, my goodness, this has been a key part of at least getting me to um, getting me through my my younger grieving process, if you will. Um, jewelry is still a, a very strong way that I connect with my mom as an adult, but um, just really seeing how much it helped me express myself and the pain that I was in without me even realizing it at the time. Mm-hmm. And so that is how it kind of all came together. And while it didn't begin as remembered jewelry, that's now my focus. And I have a really beautiful community on Instagram of a lot of primarily other motherless daughters, but really any griever in general, you know, I speak about grief and loss and trauma very generally. I don't, I don't want anybody to feel excluded because ultimately my beliefs extend to all of us, um, no matter what our loss looked like. So it's been a really full circle and beautiful experience is sort of still unfolding as, as I speak. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. I hear you. No, I, I, and I think, yeah, I'm just picking up on the organicity of it and I can relate to that with the death dialogues yes. project. Yes, when absolutely. you're, when your um, life experiences and your loss can manifest in a way that um, brings some, something to other people, you know, your people would be proud of, you know, your mother would be proud of. Yeah, there's a deep sense of um, connection with that, I'm sure. Absolutely. So, yeah. yeah. And So tell us a little bit more about the jewelry specifically, if you don't mind. Yeah. So, you know, kind of going actually back to the dragonfly and the symbols, that's a big piece of what I do is I take different meaningful symbols that people hold, whether it's angel wings or dragonflies or butterflies or baby feet, insert anything, um, I try and take those meaningful symbols and I'll pair them with stamped initial charms, birthstones, et cetera, so that you can really wear their memory out in the world. Um, you can touch it. You can feel close to it. You can keep it close to your heart. You can share your story. You can not share your story, but still have it, you know, um, show it to the world without having to explicitly say, you know, these pieces of yourself. Um, and and that's how it initially evolved in terms of the remembrance aspect. But now I provide a lot of keepsakes as well, different inspirational and encouraging keychains. I have some apparel where um, I have some embroidered hats with my mom's penmanship. Um, and then word <clears throat> for the word joy, that was a big piece of um, my story that I didn't talk about at all. I just realized <laughs> Um, no, fill us in. I will, I will. Um, but it's also just recently, um, branching out into different grief resources as well. So, um, some grief affirmation cards and, and really just trying to provide, um, something for everybody. Um, because for example, men may not wear jewelry or people may not connect with their loved one's memory in that way. So, um, 
I love it as um, I'm always a big per uh, person that likes the talisman kind of thing, you know, wearing meaningful pieces. But what kept coming up with me while you're describing the jewelry is perfect alternative for people who don't want to get a tattoo, but want that kind of exactly meaning, you know, to exactly. have on your wrist or yes. around your neck. Yeah. Yes. And that embodied idea of keeping their memory alive. Of course, we would want to talk about them and say their names and all those things, but it's also this tangible way of, you know, you're sitting there and you feel lonely and you can grab your keychain or rub your necklace or put your hat on, et cetera. So it really, yes. you know, it's, it's not only to help, um, facilitate that they were here, but really to create that, that tangible comfort as well. Um, thank you. And the piece about joy specifically, and, and this is something I always try to clarify for people. It's, it's interesting to have a business called the joyful jewelry box that revolves around grief and loss. You know, I think we, most of us would agree. Um, while grief and joy, um, are interconnected and go hand in hand. Grief is certainly not a joyful experience. Um, however, before I was born, my mom was in a really, or my family in general was in a really extreme and stressful season. And so when I was born, it was very intentional that she wanted to name me Lindsay joy to represent the joy that, that they were experiencing in the midst of what was also a really hard time for them. And so growing up, I really didn't um, – I wouldn't say that I didn't understand the meaning. I think I almost resented it, um, mm, mm-hmm. right, because I was angry. I was yeah. upset. I didn't, I didn't want to be joyful. Um, and yet as I've become an adult and really recognized how much I've attention I've given to grief and how much I've withheld joy from myself as well out of guilt or – um, resentment or et cetera, how much it really honors her (laughs) Mm -hmm. to continue to carry that forward and how much she really sort of gave me the prescription for how to handle living without her before she even left. Wow. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. That is so moving. Her gift, her gift to you. It was a part of you. Definitely. And it's a gift that keeps on giving and I'm trying to share it with others, you know, as much as, but you got to dig to that gift, I think. And that's another big piece, I think, that is important in my story that, that I didn't just wake up one day and, and know all of these things or feel this way, or, you know, it's taken 25 plus years to be able to unpack all of this and give myself permission to look at it a different way. And, and to see the gifts that have come from it. So you're such a wonderful example because even people who, you know, had experience where they remember the person they lost, even if it's a parent, you know, so many people were getting this overculture uh, message of, you know, just move on, mm-hmm. um, slap that smile on, pick yourself up by your bootstraps, mm-hmm. stiff upper lip that, you know, they, that's what we're about here, right? Is giving the role modeling, you know, people listen to this story. This is the difference between your grief and your trauma manifesting itself. Like you would have been a perfect example of somebody who could just um, be manifesting anxiety attacks 
or obsessive compulsive tendencies and have no clue where they came from, you mm-hmm. know, deal with it on your own, feel extremely un- unfulfilled and unhappy when in fact it was about the pieces of grief that and loss that were never fully processed. So, you know, it's so important to remind people if you don't pull it out like you have and process it and process it, you know, and look at developmental stages and process it, it will have its way with you in ways that aren't, you know, are even more troublesome than actually feeling the feelings. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and how much that'll shift and change. I think you've, you've described that really well, like not only developmentally speaking, but if you don't get to the root of that, because the thing is, is I did start therapy in my early twenties, but it wasn't trauma informed by any means. Um, and I don't know that you need to jump headfirst into that, but I think that it was really important that we identified that that was a big piece of what was going on, right? And and it wasn't, right? And so right. There, were, there were certain things that, um, you know, I went for so a lot of relational issues and ultimately, you, you know, you saw some relief or some progress in some of those things. And then you get some distance and then you see all these things reemerge in all these other ways, Um Right. Because then it came back as panic attacks and anxiety and depression. And and I still had no idea that I was living with trauma. Right. That was a big piece of like, of course, it was tragic that I lost my mom. Of course, it was tragic the way that it happened. But I didn't realize that I was traumatized. Right. Right. (laughs) Right? Um, Until many years into therapy. And um, and as someone who was in the profession and really digging through it. And again, I think, you know, we've we've come so far, particularly. with trauma in the last five and 10 years, but I think it's just, it will continue to take different shapes. Um, and that's why I think it's important that while healing is possible, I think that healing means that we're integrating it into our lives, right? It doesn't just disappear and we never see it again. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. And it's so important that, you know, some people, if you, I just highly recommend that people get at least one confidant that is open to talking about these things because so many people shy away from it. Even if you're not seeing a therapist, then have someone in your life that when those waves do come Mm -hmm. and you need to process it, you can process it. And of course, right, you know, do process in other ways as well. But I do think there's something that you can't quite mimic with the being heard. And again, that's, that's why we're here. We're, practicing these conversations are people are having practice at listening to these conversations, right? You Mm -hmm. have shared deeply, you know, you are going to have people that have experienced loss, have some ahas about their own stories. You're also, we're going to have people listen that maybe haven't ventured into that place, haven't had deep loss or had to sit with somebody, but by hearing you share so deeply and heart centered they're going to be better able to be that person for someone else. That is true relationship. Absolutely. And, you know, I appreciate, I really appreciate you saying that because I think, especially with social media and and so much of um, mental health content being readily available at our fingertips. And, you know, I share a lot about my experience with therapy and I think it's really important for me to say that while it's a big piece of my toolbox, I recognize my privilege in having that, um, and that not everybody who lives with grief needs therapy. But what I think is really important when we talk about the journaling um, and the body movement and and all the other ways that we can process this grief. 
for me personally, as someone who's living with attachment trauma, it is crucial (laughs) to have that relational piece as part of my recovery, right? Because I can't, I can't develop those skills and heal that relational piece in my journal. I have to do, you know, I have to do that with another individual. So that's, that's something that I like to really make clear about therapy is, is the benefit of what you get in that relationship. Certainly you have access to process and, and visualize and download all of the stuff that you've lived through. But like you said, having a witness to really just create that vulnerability and that compassion and that safety creates a whole nother level of healing, I think. It does. And, and while we're on this topic, for our listeners who may have tried therapy and, oh my gosh, this didn't work with this individual, or maybe thinking about it, feel empowered to interview the person who's going to, you might be seeking out yes. to do therapy with. I think that, you know, it is one of those, um, you know, just like your doctor, we don't think that we can kind of switch the power tables, you know, and actually mm-hmm. interview, are you a good fit, fit for me? This is big work. And it's Absolutely. got to be with somebody you connect with. And it's okay. Not everybody connects with everybody. So just sure. know, you know, I used to always tell people, you know, try three different therapists, you know, if, if the first one doesn't work, the second, you know, at least give it three times before you say therapy doesn't work for me. Because in all likelihood, it's that this person, you know, we didn't connect and I need to look somewhere else. Absolutely. And I I would emphasize, I mean, even my very first experience with therapy was very traumatic, quite honestly. Um, They weren't trauma informed and ultimately basically said, we can't help you in the time frame we have. Here's a referral list and we'll see you later. Yeah. You know, and as somebody who really was just beginning to sift through that as a young adult, you know, I didn't go back for three years and yet now here I am and I, (laughs) I wave my therapy flag high. I will go as long as I need to go. And, um, you know, I think that that's a big statement in the sense of, um, it can be really hard and scary and yet it's still going to be worth it when you find the right person. That's right. And I don't know, this is just a very selfish thing as a therapist speaking In this day and age, you know, where I'm at after, you know, going through the spectrum of all my training and um, maybe besides EMDR, uh, I'm going to put EMDR to the side. I don't think you necessarily, you wouldn't have to have this background and, um, you know, if it's a concrete coping mechanism like that, or, you know, if somebody's doing some hypnosis Mm -hmm. work or something like that, Mm -hmm. that's a different story. But for talk therapy, I would be looking for somebody that can relate to deep loss on a personal level. Mm -hmm. There is just something there that we don't get in our training that it helps the empathy, the understanding. Um, You you just, yeah, you can't learn that from a book. So that would be, that would personally, and again, you know, you may be working with somebody who hasn't gone through that or other people may, you're never going to find somebody, for instance, Lindsay Joy, who is, had your situation specifically, but I, but for me personally, I, I would like to know that people can know what that deep loss feels like within mm-hmm. their heart. Absolutely. Just, and too, that you have, like you said, not only having that experience, but also that we have the right to ask what, how, 
what do you believe about grief, right? Do you believe that there's five stages and really understanding like what they're, what they're bringing, what perspective they're bringing to the therapy room, right? Because hey. you might know before you even, <laughs> oh, okay, well, I actually don't agree. So thank you. I appreciate that. I respect that, but I'm going to try somebody else. Right, um, right. So you're allowed to ask, like, what is your perspective? Like, is I don't want to, ins- everybody's going to have different questions, but ultimately, um, not only have you experienced that, but can you share how you view the grieving process through that or something, you know? Right, right. What's yeah. your worldview? And, yeah. you know, for stories like we're talking about, how do you feel about the afterlife, you know, yeah. or mm-hmm. how do you feel about those things? I do want to circle around real quick because I am so old that I can tell you a little story about the five stages of grief which I started learning in nursing school Mm -hmm. back in the early eighties. And what is not really widely known now is that Elizabeth Kubler Ross created the five stages of grief actually for people who are diagnosed with cancer. Yes. Yes. We know not for people, (laughs) you know, but, but word on the street, right. Is that Mm -hmm. it's flat out for grief. And, you know, we have so many, beautiful images and memes now coming around about the tangled mess of grief we do and i actually i feel a little bad because the poor lady got a little bit of a bad rap for a while and i was like i don't fit this this is bogus this is not true right and then in writing my thesis and really sifting that out you know not only (laughs) that wasn't what her case was and you know there is some support for saying that she was actually coerced in supporting that beyond just for dying patients right again we'll never necessarily know but wow what a what an impact it has made (laughs) it has made and it is you know and it's a it's a good framework to be aware of when those emotions Mm -hmm. surface but I think it also I've just heard some people who you know actually have some frustration if they can't find themselves on that timeline totally and that was really looking at it as a timeline Mm -hmm. and so a lot of our listeners may not realize that. So I'm glad we're hitting that just real quickly. Yeah, yeah. I agree. Yes. And, and, and maybe I <clears throat> didn't say it explicitly, but that's what I try to imply in everything. When I was saying that I never saw myself in any of these models. Right. And the only model that there was for so long was Kubler-Ross. Um, right. And that was why it was very much like, you know, my, the beginning of my work was really just skeptical of everything about grief. Right. And a lot of what I believe is, much, um, you know, is based upon my experience and the experience that I've heard from others and my intuition, you know, and people can take it or leave it, but it has done wonders for my process to allow myself to think and believe differently about grief in general. And by you sharing your story with us, that helps me understand more and broaden, and it will help our listeners understand it. And that's my whole point is we don't learn from textbooks about grief, Mm -hmm. you know, we can read it and see it as a perspective, but what informs me more than anything else is listening to your stories. Um, yeah. And I think that that's why, that's why we're here is every story is going to be 100% unique. And you've certainly proven that today. Thank you, Becky. I appreciate it so much. So Lindsay, Joy, circle back around and tell us where we can find you. Yes. So I'm very active on Instagram. That is where I provide the majority of my grief support. And my handle is the joyful jewelry box. 
um, please come find me. Come say hello. And my website and shop is also thejoyfuljewelrybox.com. Um, and you can reach me through both of those avenues. And, well, uh, yeah, I think that's it. Lovely. So we'll put that in the program description as well. We'll make sure we have the links. But I know sometimes, you know, something that has your title within the website, people will be able to just go right there. So Yes, perfect. Lovely. Thank you so much for spending time with us today, Lindsay Joy. I appreciate it so much. Thank you for having me, Becky. And thank you for having these important conversations. I'm just so thrilled to... (laughs) That podcasts like this exist and that you are taking, taking on the task of doing it because I know, I know how big it is. <laughs> yeah. And that really, really means a lot to hear that from people. And yeah, just know it's a deep passion and um, a, a service that I, uh, I feel is the right thing, much like what you feel about the work that you're doing now. So yes. Thank you. Yes. All right. I'm really grateful to connect with you. Thank you again. And you take care as well. Okay. Bye-bye. Thanks, Becky. Bye-bye. Since you've listened to this story today, I want to tell you about another podcast that I'm really impressed with. I know because you're here that you enjoy hearing people's stories. There's a podcast called And Then Everything Changed that starts at a place in time when someone's life was permanently altered. This I find to be a fascinating starting point, and the host, Roni Plank, does an amazing job with her guests. Several of you have asked me, when are you going to do an episode on your own story? Well, that's how I know about this podcast is because I had the honor to be a guest on And Then Everything Change. And the result is that you can find more about my story and the story behind the Deaf Dialogues Project. It's an in-depth conversation that you really can't find anywhere else. And I'd love for you to listen to it. You can find And Then Everything Changed on all of your favorite podcast platforms. My episode, I have linked on the Deaf Dialogues Pro. Uh, project Instagram profile. I'd love for you to give it a follow and listen to Ronit's wonderful podcast. And I know that you will be pleased that you're listening to it. I certainly am. I'll link that at the end in our subscriber notes. You take good care. We hope you've enjoyed your time with us today. We'd love for you to get further connected with our project. You can find the links in the podcast information. You can also find the Death Dialogues Project on Facebook, on Instagram, and at www.deathdialogues.net. Take good care and see you next time.